when I saw the pictures of the devastation, my soul wept. People lost their homes. Over 400 homes got lost. My father lost his home. All of my friends that lived across the street from me, all of their houses were gone. I didn't really know what they were doing. I didn't really understand it all. They had a scare tactic with a crane over one of the neighbor's homes. The, the ball would come in, smash the house. My parents were in the kitchen crying, and they told us that we had to move. There were other routes. They could have chose a better route. There was a, a cohesiveness with the community prior to I-94. There were businesses. Families looked out for one another. We had a lot of kids and family, you know, families that were tight-knit and they all watched each other. That was the strength of the community. If we know who we are and who we came from, it helps us to go forward in our lives. If we know nothing about our history, then how are we to know about our future? This is Rondo, Beyond the Pavement, the podcast. I'm Lamar Green. The stories you will hear on this podcast are from the people who've lived or live in the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota. In the 1920s, Rondo, St. Paul's largest African-American neighborhood, was flourishing with music, theater, African-American newspapers, and businesses that were booming. The community was thriving. Until September of 1956, when the construction of Interstate 94 tore through the Rondo community, Rondo homeowners resisted the construction and protests began. Residents were forcefully removed from their home. Thousands of Rondo residents were displaced. Homes and successful businesses were demolished and the community was torn apart. The construction of 94 shattered the fabric of the Rondo community. It did not shatter Rondo's spirit. To me, the spirit of Rondo lives on through the Martin Luther King Center, or Studio 4. To me, Rondo is still thriving because the spirit of Rondo lives through each one of us. These are the stories of Rondo, Beyond the Pavement. Here is Rondo resident, Miss Lovejoy. There, there's songs written about the end of innocence and the beginning of reality. When, when I was maybe seven, eight, nine, when they started talking about the freeway, and I had no concept of what a freeway was or how it was put together. I'd seen highways, but they were two-lane highways. And that's kind of what I thought about, that if my ball rolled onto the highway, they would stop so I could get my ball. That's just what I thought. And then to watch and to, to start hearing the adult conversations about uh, this person is moving or this is happening and some of the tears that my parents' friends shed because they had to move. 
and for a child to hear that and you don't quite take it in you just know that um, your mom's friends are sad mm -hmm. but you can't you can't you can't understand it uh, as a child but then when you see when you see the tears and, and emotionally feel the pain of the people, all the families that lived in front of us um, pick up and start to move and you're left behind. So, you know, we, we know that there's trauma in those that moved away, but there's also trauma of those that stayed. And I think it's unrecognized trauma that um, really wasn't dealt with. And it's, that's not just Rondo, that's across the nation, that there were those that moved out, but there were those that stayed. And what kind of trauma uh, do they carry through their lives? I would used to ask people that lived around here when I'd see them, when you dream at night, do you see the highway? And no one ever said, oh yeah, I see the highway. It was always, no, it's like the neighborhood used to be. It was, um, um, the Taylor's house, the Brooks's house, the Rito's house, the Carter's house, all of those houses in our, in our, in our memory is, are still there. When you look at the businesses, and some of them were able to move to different places, but when the neighborhood has dispersed, the, the corner drugstore used to fill prescriptions for this person, but now they're in Maplewood, now they're in Como, now they're someplace else, they don't come back. And so that business just, just fell apart. That's one of those big questions of how would businesses grown uh, because of, or some of them, maybe it was time for them to, uh, I can't remember her name, the, um, she had a, a tailoring shop up on Dale. She's old. Maybe she was younger than me now, but you know, as a young child, she was old. <laughs> and maybe her um, business would have gone away anyway, but um, it went away because she lived where the freeway is. My parents were going to meetings, and there was. Then I got. When as I got older, I know Reverend Massey was um, heading up the fact that uh, he wanted the highway lower rather than higher, uh, and that's one of the things that you know, as a child, you don't quite understand, but it, it was important for some reason, and so that that's kind of one of the first things and I guess it it became it became real when um, 
things well, when houses started being torn down or moved. They moved some houses out of here. It was also a big thing at that time. Vandals would set houses on fire, and um, it was it was a horrible thing to watch a house burn. But we came together as neighbors, and maybe you hadn't seen or talked to that neighbor in quite a while. But you came together and you watched the fire, and you had a little little social hour there. That's sad, but <laughs> that's that's the way it went. Um, I remember when I was in labor with my first child, um, I had come to live with my parents because um, his father, my husband, was in the Navy and he was in Italy. Um, and I was sitting in their bedroom looking across the, the highway mm -hmm. at um, a house that was on fire because I knew the people who had lived in that house. And even though it wasn't on the freeway, was it had been vacated because of the what was happening in the neighborhood was HRA Housing and Redevelopment were coming in and taking out some of the older houses that they felt couldn't be repaired. And so not only was the highway coming through taking out houses, HRA was also taking out houses. So the whole neighborhood was um, in flux. Cardi Park, you know, that was a whole neighborhood of. Of, of houses um, that were gone because um, they were re redeveloping mm -hmm. and re-beautifying the neighborhood. And so houses that where the projects are right there, those were neighbors' houses. They took those out and put that up. I hit teenagehood when they were digging the hole. And so a lot of my friends were gone or moved to different places. And friends that were on the other side of the hole, and that's what, I think that's how we looked at it as the hole, uh, because it was a hole for about three, four, five years oh, wow. before it became really a freeway. Um, and I had a friend on the other side, and you never knew from one month to the next month where you could cross over because they were constantly digging mm -hmm. and bridges had to be built. And sometimes, you know, you, you, the, there was a bridge at Dale, but there wasn't, she lived on um, one block over on St. Albans. So you'd have to go up to Dale, and over, which isn't a big deal, but it is when you're used to just walking over. Um, and I think sometimes we would walk down in the hole. After the workmen left, we would go down in the hole and see what we could do in the hole. Just being in the hole, you know, what, what is there? it's just sand. You know, what, what could you do in there? <laughs> One of the things that was happening in the hole, what they discovered, is this used to be, this area was a lake. Rock hounds found lots of agates. It was a huge agate field. And so at five o'clock, the workmen would leave and the rock hunters would 
come into the hole and look for agates. One of the things I guess I remember most, and it's because I work with people who sometimes haven't lived in a neighborhood where it is just commonplace to go to work. Everyone worked. Um, I don't care what it was, but everyone worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she did daycare. So we always had other people's children in our homes. Um, there was, uh, of course, a lot of the men worked on the railroads or at the train station. Um, they were worked for wealthy families and drove cars. Um, women were worked in homes, worked in retail. Uh, we had we had a um, teacher that moved into the neighborhood, and that was pretty exciting to have a teacher, a black male teacher, uh, that lived in the neighborhood. We had a social worker, and she was held in very high esteem because she had a degree, and she worked in um, the white world uh, as a social worker. So she was held in high, high esteem. My dad had, had started halfway through his master's in chemistry, and then he got married, and education stopped and they moved here and he worked on the railroads. He was a waiter and he's, he would mention that he had a very educated crew. He had a chemistry background. There was another one who was a lawyer and another one who was like an accountant, all working on the railroads because those are the jobs in the 30s and 40s and the 50s of what you could, how you could work. Mm -hmm. And um, smart men, um, just no opportunities to get into accounting, get into being a lawyer. But if you needed an accountant, you went to him and he would figure things out. If you needed a lawyer, you went to, Johnny was his name, and you went to him and he would help you out with legal issues. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they came to my dad for in chemistry, but <laughs> yeah. community then we all knew each other. Now when my children were younger and children, children are very good at, at building community. They introduce their parents to parents and so you, you get to know parents through your children. And When your children leave then you're on your own. <laughs> and also it was part of being in community was being in a church. Um, so that was also something that, that uh, solidified community was uh, I know when when as the teenager when I was dating my my guys would come over and my mother's my mother would say um, who are your parents uh, what school do you go to and what church do you go to and um, have my daughter back by <laughs> <laughs> myself I haven't done a very good job of reaching out and I know my neighbors but you know I don't go into their homes I don't do coffee we you know we don't go any place together mm -hmm. um, we uh, if we're in the garden we talk uh, but 
you know, we don't, we don't socialize together. No, I don't socialize with them. The differences are that we live in community, but I don't feel that we are community. Um, at least I'm not community. I've been so uh, enmeshed in my work that I don't often get involved in community issues and affairs. Um, the, the land bridge is something that I'm interested in getting more, more involved in, um, which will be part of building a community. Well, I grew up on the same property that I'm now living on. Uh, my parents' house was here, and it was torn down, oh, I don't know, how, about 45 years ago. And I was able to buy the property back, and um, I built another house on the same property. And I guess one of the interesting things about living on the property that you used to live on, that they tore the house down, when I garden, I find still find pieces of uh, their house, the siding. And when I found the first piece, I showed it to my sisters, and I said, what, do you know what this is? And they all said, wow, that's the siding from um, our parents' house, which is exciting and wow, 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 but it's asbestos siding. So I'm living on a toxic waste dump because then they would make a hole and pretty much dump the houses in and cover it over. And so, um, you know, uh, the, the ball would come in, smash the house. And then, it, you know, they take some of it away. But um, I know my parents' house had asbestos in it. Uh, it had one of those big old furnaces that was covered in asbestos. And I, I don't know if they took it out before they dumped it in. One of the important things to know about Rondo is that it was not without its struggles. Um, there, was, there was alcoholism, there was abuse, there was struggle, there were financial difficulties. Um, there, like my dad was underemployed. What happened is you, you couldn't get employed in your field because of racial issues. I, and I think that that's something that we, we should know about the community, but that's what made us so good, was that we were not without struggle, but we also were not without celebration. We celebrated our lives, you know, we went to weddings. Um, when someone got married, we knew who had the punch bowl, we knew who had the silver service, we knew who had the lace tablecloth, and you brought those, all those pieces together for a celebration. If it was uh, celebrating life because someone died, you also came together and um, you brought food for that family. You brought whatever you thought might be needed. Uh, for that family. A family down the street had a fire in their house 
and there was no Red Cross that came and said, you've got some days in a hotel. Mm -hmm. No, one person said, I'll take this child. Another person said, I'll take this child. I'll take these two boys because they're close to my, ch my children's age. We'll bring, we'll bring you um, some clothes because we've got these, these clothes. And there was always this big switch of clothes. There was no savers then. We, we just kind of trail clothes around. <laughs> my daughter outgrew it, so here it's for your daughter. But then they got together and helped him put his house back together. The house was fixed and they moved back in. But that was, that was the strength of the community. And now someone has a, a disaster in their home and we say, oh, isn't that a pity and a shame? And we go back in our own homes and, and sometimes shut the door and turn on the television and it's, it's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. But growing up here, was one of those important things to learn that you manage your life so that you have a future. Um, my parents managed their lives so they would have a future, so I would have a future. And I've done the same things with my children. They watched me go through school, and it was hard. It was hard going to school and parenting, but they watched that, and they value education, or they value developing a skill that will take them beyond where they are. There's two of my children um, went through the process of being educated and two have chosen to find fields in which they can, can manage their lives. I think that's, that's, that was the best thing of growing up in this neighborhood, seeing that people worked. They worked at work, they worked at uh, raising their children, um, they worked at being a member of a church. They worked at keeping their property up. Uh, I remember uh, uh, our first water sprinkler. Someone up the street got a water sprinkler. And um, my parents had to go get one too because that's how you water your grass. They, you know, it was, it was that sharing of information sharing of stories, um, coming together. My mom had this group that she would talk to uh, on a regular basis. And that's the other thing. They, they, showed, they showed me how to age, which I haven't done well, because my mom talked to about five or six people every single day of her life. I don't, I talk to them, but they're not what I call my friends. So. That's what growing up on Rondo is about. Don't bring it through here. You know, there were there were other there were other routes that the highway could have taken. And now we know historically we know that. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to stop the development and growth of a neighborhood, they chose throughout the United States to bring interstates through black communities. And um, that's, that's something that they have to reckon with. Um, I would say, you know, you were going to take it around the other outskirts of what is now called Frogtown, 
why don't you, why didn't you do that? Why did you have to persecute mm -hmm. a whole group of people? Um, because you didn't want them to be powerful, you didn't want them to own their own businesses, you didn't want them to own their own properties. I would imagine 95% of the properties that were taken were home, were owned. Um, we didn't rent. Um, we owned our homes. Mm -hmm. And when the highway came through, it just, it just changed everything. Um, where did those, did those families go to a rental? I don't know. I doubt, I think they, they probably bought because that was just the mentality then to own your home. I think had 94 not come through the neighborhood, um, the people I grew up with might have stayed and said we were dispersed. We became the diaspora. Um, and wow, to think of, you know, the friends that moved to the suburbs or moved to the other side of university or the other side of Selby, um, if they had, if we'd been able to stay here, I don't know what we would have done. It's an, I have to think about that question. Because um, I've never thought of it in that context. I've always thought about it in the fact that the people I grew up with were not here and I never thought about what would have happened if it hadn't, if it hadn't come through. Rondo, Beyond the Pavement is brought to you in partnership with St. Paul Almanac through their Project Story Mobile, St. Paul Neighborhood Network, and High School for Recording Arts, and funded by the City of St. Paul Cultural Star Program, and by the voters of Minnesota through a Minnesota State Arts Board Operating Support Grant, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Music from this episode is performed by myself, Yevra. You can find my music on all digital platforms. Listen to more stories from Rondo and watch the film at rondobeyondthepavement.org. <laughs>